This episode is sponsored by Horizon Capital, an M&A and micro-private equity firm that acquires and grows SaaS companies. Horizon Capital only works with SaaS companies generating between 500K and 5 million in annual recurring revenue, where they help them unlock the true value of their business and scale to the next level. Whether you're ready to move on to your next startup or want to work with the right growth partner, Horizon's team will work with you to find the best structure possible. From M&A strategy to capital investments, SaaS is all they do. Simple as that. If you're a SaaS founder with less than $5 million in annual recurring revenue and are looking to sell your business, visit horizoncapital.com today and get a free valuation. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS podcast today. Thanks again, folks. everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about instinctive marketing, a branding showdown, and the subconscious path to disruptive growth. Today, we have our guest, Leslie Zane, joining us. Leslie is the president and founder of Triggers, which is a brand consultancy company that changes customer behavior to accelerate revenue growth. Her curiosity drives her search for the key to changing customer behavior and and what some of the companies she works with call the holy grail of marketing. As a former brand manager, Leslie discovered the effectiveness of indirect messaging rather than the direct persuasion, where reaching consumers meant tapping into their aspirational desires. She then created uh, the Center for Emotional Marketing that eventually became Triggers Today. Over the past 25 years, the company has developed a track record in accelerating growth through its unique expertise in changing instinctive brand purchases. Leslie received her BA from Yale University and her MBA from Harvard Business School. She brings her unique trigger systems not just to business, but to organizations, campaigns, and more, which we'll talk about all today on today's episode. So welcome, Leslie. Super glad to have you on our show today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> cool. So for those in our, in our audience who don't know about you, can you share uh, a little bit about your background and what was the problem in the market that you see so clearly that you're able to look into solve and what was it that made you want to start your firm triggers? Sure. Uh, so I started out uh, in brand management, uh, working for some top blue chip marketing firms like Procter & Gamble and um, Johnson & Johnson and uh, and Revlon. And what amazed me about being uh, in those companies was I, I certainly learned a lot about marketing, but I also learned what didn't work. And what was surprising was that here I was at these top firms uh, that were known to be blue chip marketers. And yet many of the marketing initiatives we did just didn't work uh, and didn't work to grow business. And I really felt that there was something going on under the surface in terms of consumers' instincts that wasn't being picked up in any current research methods or brand trackers. Um, and so that really was the unmet need that I, that I saw. There was an opportunity to institutionalize success, uh, to drive consistent growth every time, not just once in a blue moon, by tapping into consumers' instincts. Nice. And was there 
a specific epiphany moment that you remember early on in your career that set you on your current path to, to launching Triggers? Well, there there were many moments like that <laughs> that I saw where where I felt that we weren't really maximizing um, the brand and and that there was maybe a better way through people's instincts. But there was one kind of formative experience that I had. Um, it was actually at Johnson and Johnson um, when I was working on the baby care business there, and uh, the business had really slowed down a lot. So revenue growth wasn't was it. What it, what it should have been for a brand with that kind of tremendous brand equity. Um, but I saw that uh, fathers, dads were becoming much more involved in baby care. Um, they were changing diapers and they were feeding more and they wanted to be involved. And so I recommended to upper management that we put the first father in a TV campaign uh, for the for the baby shampoo. And this was considered revolutionary at the time. <laughs> I know, I know you laugh. I know you think that that sounds crazy, but back then it was considered crazy. Um, and the reason was that it was still women who bought these products for the most part. And that, that was true. Um, and there wasn't really any research supporting my, my suggestion, my recommendation, but I kept fighting for it. And, um, because what I saw and what I felt was that I, when mom saw a father taking care of a baby, something happened to them. Uh, their, their minds were flooded with all of these positive associations, uh, positive associations about the brand being a more progressive brand and the father being uh, a more progressive kind of father and being nurturing and well-rounded and multidimensional and the kind of husband I want and the kind of father I want for my kids. And, and, and boy, he's pretty cute. I, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and it, and all of these things that functioned on an emotional level that just weren't picked up in research. So I kept advocating for this. And unfortunately, I uh, received my performance review that year. And uh, I was told, um, that it said this in black and white, I remember it to this day, uh, Leslie is too passionate about putting fathers in advertising. And that was a negative and for you? That was a negative. That was, okay. they, that, to them, that was a negative. Leslie's too passionate. And this is a, a, an executional concern, not a strategic one. Well, this was like a knife in my heart because if I thought of myself as anything, it was very strategic. Um, so I, I got this negative performance review. I was very upset about it, but that didn't stop me. I kept advocating to put the father in advertising and they finally did. Uh, and what do you think happened? Did well, that's it, everybody. <laughs> it was the top performing, um, TV commercial in, uh, Johnson's baby's history. Uh, and products started, you know, growing like it hadn't grown in, in many years. And, and so what I had found there and the epiphany moment was that there are these subconscious shortcuts. There are these visual codes, verbal codes, uh, could be anything, could be a sound, could be um, a piece of music, it could be something tangible. Um, but there are these succinct codes and cues in any of our senses um, which I call triggers, that are packed with meaning and packed with positive association and, and really are a subconscious shortcut to growth, 
um, because there was a direct linkage between what was happening in the subconscious mind of prospective customers and uh, the brand's growth. So it was a direct connection between the subconscious and brand growth. And that was, that was huge. And so with that, I um, decided in 1995 to start my own company. It was the first uh, female-founded uh, brand consulting firm. Um, and I've had it for 25 years and we've been practicing instinctive marketing ever since. Nice. And I imagine your, your next performance review was uh, a lot better than the last. <laughs> Got a nice bonus that year. <laughs> Well, I, I left okay. <laughs> and went on to the next thing. Um, but, but it was, it was certainly very gratifying, uh, mm. to see that, that that was what happened to the business. Um, nice. because to me, it's all about growth and marketing has to be a lot about a lot more than just pretty pictures mm. and clever slogans. If it doesn't build the business, why do it? Um, right. so that's, that's what our company is all about. And that's my, my whole philosophy. Cool. And can you speak a little bit more about the, the, the coin term you called, you know, the trigger strategy and specifically for our audience who are mostly SaaS founders or SaaS marketers, investors, um, why is it important for them to consider that when building their companies? So uh, the answer to that question goes back to kind of understanding about the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. So can I spend a few minutes just, you know, explaining that? Go for it. So um, we have two different types of brains, so to speak, to, to, to say it figuratively, a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. The conscious mind exists in our neocortex. That's the newer part of the brain. And it moves very slowly. It thinks very slowly. It only processes information at 40 bits per second. In contrast, our subconscious mind, our instinctive brain, which is in the older part of the brain, the reptilian complex, that processes information at 40 million bits per second. And it's automatic. We're not mm -hmm. aware of it. Um, and it turns out that 95% of the brand purchases that we make are made by our instinctive brain, mm. not by our conscious brain. We may rationalize after the fact we made with our conscious brain. We may think that we <laughs> made the decision uh, voluntarily, but the fact is it's actually our instinctive brain. And we'll talk more about this, how this works in a minute, but it's the instinctive brain that actually controls most of the decisions we make. And that's particularly true in the world of brands. Mm. And I think that, that I've heard those studies, right, where your instinctive mind, if you're hungry or you're tired and you go into a store, you're just more likely to spend more or make a purchase that maybe you wouldn't have, you know, with, with a full stomach or, or you know, clear mind. There are all kinds of things like yeah. that that are going yeah. on. You're, you're exactly right. But why this is important for marketers and for business owners and startups and entrepreneurs to understand is that it turns out that if you market to the conscious mind, which is basically how most marketing is, is crafted today, we try mm -hmm. to persuade people, we try to tell them the rational reasons they should buy something. Um, we go up against the conscious mind with most of our marketing techniques. And frankly, a lot of our research also asks people what they think. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but what people say is notoriously unreliable. Um, what people say has very little to do with what they actually do. We just saw that in the U.S. presidential election. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've seen that over and over again in most polls and in in a lot of different types of research. In terms of marketing, when you try to persuade the conscious mind of something, um, you're met with resistance. You're met with skepticism. The conscious mind sees you coming. It says, ah, this person's trying to sell me something. And it pushes back and it's resistant. So when you market to the conscious brain, you're pretty much going to run up against a wall. It's going to be really hard to get results. It's going to be hard to gain share. It's going to be hard to grow your company. Now let's look at the conscious mind and see how that works. The conscious, I'm sorry, the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind doesn't see you coming. It's, it works automatically. It's not aware that you're, it's being marketed to. And it turns out that you can accumulate information about your brand in the subconscious mind much more easily. It goes down easier. You're piggybacking on ideas that already exist in the subconscious mind. And it accumulates there without the person realizing it. Um, and it's much more malleable and easier to influence. So you can make progress faster. You can gain share faster. You can drive revenue growth um, on an accelerated level by marketing to the subconscious over the conscious. And by the way, that's where brands form. Brands form in the subconscious, in your memory, uh, not in the conscious mind. Does that make Mm. sense? It does make sense. So just, just being more specific there. So conscious mind, you know, comes to mind to me right now when I think of that, you know, the marketing that we see is, you know, uh, features, uh, solutions, this is what can do for you, this is the benefits, and you're trying to rationalize, is this for me, right? Just thinking it through and logically, subconscious, what would that look like from a SaaS perspective, if you can, you know, mention? uh, Imagery, symbols, iconography, mm. um, the flow, the feeling, the names, you know, naming, um, Mm. things that have, um, different dimensions to them. Um, mm. Because it's it's not that I'm saying the features and the benefits don't matter. Right. I'm not saying throw all of that out the window because it turns out that the optimal is a combination of rational and emotional. Functional and emotional wins over functional alone and functional and emotional wins against emotional alone. Right. Um, it's the combination of the of the two, but imagery and codes and cues and metaphors um, and symbols uh, and names—all um, of those things uh, have an outsized, outsized exponential impact on mm. the subconscious brain, and so you're able to accelerate the growth of your brand um, versus going up against the conscious mind. Uh, which is going to just take a lot longer and you're going to have all this resistance. Mm. Yeah, what about like social proof, testimonials, you know, things like that? That would probably be sub- subconscious, right? Give yeah, more, I think all, yeah. All, of that's, all of that's helpful. Um, so we'll, we'll talk, you know, in a minute about what a brand really is, um, but influencers and, and all of that, that's part of what goes into, uh, a strong brand. Cool. Um, so I want to talk about an example. So I think you talk and write about the brand uh, Connectum. Um, can you tell us a little bit, you know, what the backstory is there? What is it? What do they do? And why, why is it important that you, that we, we talk about that? Sure. So we, we, I said a minute ago that brands form in 
our subconscious. Where do they live? They live in our memories. So it turns out every brand has a network of associations that has gotten glued to the brand over time. Um, and since everybody in your audience is kind of on the technical side, um, I think I can say that, you know, say it this way. Imagine your brand is a central node and connected to that central node is a bunch of branches that have gotten adhered to the brand over time. Each of those branches has physicality. It's not just a wispy, a brand is not a wispy thing that's rolling around in our brain. There's actual physicality there in that there's a, the central node is the brand and these branches get glued to the brand through protein synthesis and ideas, associations, positive and negative associations, images, language, um, experiences, uh, sounds, all of that get glued to the brand over time and become an accumulation of memories that form uh, an ecosystem or network around that central node. And that is what a brand connectome is. It's a hidden network of associations that lives in our subconscious, lives in our memories based on accumulated memories of the brand and it dictates what you do. If your brand connectome is large and robust and has lots of positive associations, it is going to be your go-to brand because it's the largest one in your mind, the largest and most positive. Whereas if the brand has fewer associations, it has a smaller brand connectome, less robust, it's weaker, it has less salience in your mind, and less positivity, and then it's the brand you don't choose. So in every category, most people have their go-to brand, and then they have other brands that they, they use less or not at all. And it all is driven by your brand connectome. Your brand connectome dictates the brand that you choose. That's your go-to uh, brand that you use over and over and over again. And the reason that that's so important is that is the holy grail of marketing, to have mm. your brand be the brand that's instinctively chosen, where you have instinctive brand preference preference um, in a category. You want to be the brand that that has the dominant, that's the dominant instinctive choice in your category. So let's say I'm in the supermarket. Let's just move away from software for a minute. Sure. Um, but let's say you're in the supermarket and you're in, this, in the orange juice aisle uh, and you're going to buy, you know, your orange juice today. Do you sit at, in the aisle and think about it and say, hey, should I buy this brand? Should I buy that brand? Well, this one has five benefits. No, this one has seven features. Let me see which one. No, you don't do that. You just reach. And you reach over and over and over again for the same brand for the most part on, as if you're on autopilot. Right. That moment, that in, is a moment of instinctive choice and it's driven by the fact that you have a brand connectome for that brand that's large and robust and most salient in your mind. The brand that's most salient is the one that you choose. Salient, most salient and most positive. It has to be mm. both more positive than negative associations. So positivity and the size of the brand connectome dictate the brands that you choose. 
you don't choose your brands, your brand connect home does. <laughs> Interesting how that happens. Because eh? I think that happens with, um, yeah, like anything you buy, right? I mean, people have their preference with the vehicles, right? They'll say, okay, I'll only buy Japanese cars. You know, they've built that brand and reputation over years, whether it's Honda or Toyota. And some people say, no, I'm only a Ford or Chevy person, right? It doesn't matter. They don't even look at the features of all of it. Like I'm only sticking to my American brands or my Japanese and, and that's it. They've just developed that and it's been, you know, for every single car for the rest of their life will be one of those, right? A hundred percent. We are yeah. we are creatures of habit, but mm. now you know where the habit comes from. The the habit comes from a brand connectome that lives inside that that habit. You could call the habit the, sh- the subconscious shortcut because it's that instant choice that yeah. you're making. It doesn't take any thought. You know, by the way, our brains are very lazy. We don't mm. like to work hard. And so our brains have figured out all these shortcuts to enable us to make very quick decisions, because otherwise we'd probably go crazy. We've got so many decisions that we have to make in, in a single day. Um, you know, just, you know, getting up and brushing your teeth is a, is a decision. So again, we have these subconscious shortcuts, but what lives inside that subconscious shortcut is a brand connectome that mm. is d- dictating the choices that we make. Nice. Um, so I think there was a, a recent Warren article, which was called the, the Cracking the Code on Brand Growth. Um, can you share what was the discovery you made about, uh, you know, when you wrote that article and how is it that, you know, brands are growing? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I was really excited about this article because it enabled us to really lay out our whole uh, theory um, which is based on brain science that, that you know, now exists. And it's, it's actually a combination of several sciences, um, neuroscience, psychology, anthropology, and behavioral economics. The, the human brain is so complex that it takes four disciplines <laughs> to understand how it works. Uh, but I wrote this article together with Wharton professor Michael Platt. Um, and uh, we, what we lay out in this article is how people actually make decisions. And I talk about the brand Connectome in there. And really there are just two simple principles for how brands grow. Uh, And that is two of the things that I just mentioned a minute ago, which are that you have to have the largest physical footprint in the brain. Um, In a way, it's almost like a game of monopoly. You want to have more real estate than your competitors. Um, and also the higher ratio of positive to negative associations because negative associations weigh down your growth. They keep you from growing. They, they hinder growth. Mm. So the, the cracking the code on brand growth is the, um, is the discovery that there are really just two simple things that make brands grow. How robust the brand connectome is and how positive it is. Um, and, and, you know, you actually have a role in that as, your biz, as a business leader in making the brand connect home grow. A metaphor that I like to use is um, that you're planting a seed. So let's mm-hmm. say you have a startup. Let's say you have an idea for this, this new software that you're going to create. Um, that's the seed, the brand, and that your job is to add more and more positive associations to that seed to make it grow into a sapling and then into a plant and then into a full-grown tree. And the soil and the water and the sun are the positive associations. So your, your, your job as a, a business leader, a brand leader, a marketer, uh, whatever role you play in the company is to make that 
sapling, that that seed grow from a sapling into a full-grown tree. And the moment at which your connectome, your tree eclipses, it has a canopy that's so large, it eclipses the brand connectome of your competition. Mm -hmm. That's the moment that people switch to your brand. So does that make sense? I mean, that's, that's basically how brands grow and how you gain market share. There's only one way. Your brand has to, if you want it to become the instinctive choice. Mm. Now, can I incentivize people to buy my brand? Sure. I could give them a million dollars. I could give them tons of coupons. I can discount, um, you know, the price, you know, lower and lower and lower till it's almost free. I can, you know, incentivize people to make a purchase. But I'm, what I'm really doing there is I'm almost buying the sale. Mm. I'm buying the purchase. I'm, I'm um, getting a transaction. I, I can create a transactional purchase, but that's very different from an instinctive purchase. To get an instinctive purchase where they buy you over and over and over again, and that's the go- their go-to brand, you really need to change the memory structure in the subconscious and make that brand connectome branch out. I actually call it brain branching. So Mm. how brands grow is through a principle we call brain branching, where that brand connectome is branching out further and further and further till it overtakes more and more of the real estate in in um, in your brain. Yeah, I guess discounting, you can't really, uh, you know, buy people's loyalty, right? They'll buy them, they'll be short-term, transactional, but you're not getting any loyalty to the brand itself, right? They're just, you know, buying you because of the price and that's that's probably not the best long-term strategy. Can, can you talk a little bit more specifically about those? So, so real estate specifically, you talk about expanding your real estate footprint. And then second, secondly is the positive uh, associations. Can you give some examples there of like, you know, software company, what can they do to build on both of those uh, on their marketing? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I think when you're creating any brand um, in any category, you really need to develop an arsenal, a portfolio of brand assets uh, that is going to create positive associations about your brand so that you can start to accumulate that positive feeling and also build that brand connectome. Uh, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the most important ways is to develop distinctive brand assets. Okay. Distinctive brand assets are, the, it's not just a logo. So a lot of people, you know, kind of think about it as your brand, your logo, and you're done. That's not true. Um, you can develop distinctive brand assets across many different aspects of your business. And you should have more than just the logo that is a distinctive brand asset. The overall look and feel of the website can be distinctive and can be a distinctive brand assets. Your iconography can be a distinctive brand asset. You could have a little character um, that, you know, that, that keeps appearing that is a distinctive brand asset. Um, even your tonality. I mean, if you look at one of the brands that's on, um, that's advertised a lot on television, Arby's, you know, in that, for that brand, the voice is, you know, there's a very deep voice, you know, we mm-hmm. have the meat. Um, that brand is using, you know, the voice and the tone of voice and the, the humor in it as a distinctive brand asset. So there's all different types of distinctive brand assets and the more you have, the better. But importantly, you want to use the same ones over and over and over again so they become imprinted in people's minds. 
Mm. Um, and, and that will help that help build that brand connectome more rapidly than just kind of randomly, you know, changing what you do, you know, every few weeks kind of thing. Makes sense. Um, and you speak about this, what is the subconscious advantage and how do we go uh, about getting that? So subconscious advantage is a concept that we developed, um, to contrast against competitive advantage. So business schools, you know, from way back when, when I was in business school, uh, and that's quite a long time ago, um, (laughs) uh, used the term competitive advantage. Professor Michael Porter of Harvard Business School um, wrote a whole book on this. And the idea there was that you can get a competitive advantage two different ways. One is you can be the low cost supplier that would give you a competitive advantage. And the other is that you could be differentiated versus the other brands that you compete with. Uh, And that will give you a competitive advantage. What we believe is that just having a differentiated product is not enough. And in fact, it may not even be necessary. Why do I say that? What I'm saying is that if I look at my 25 years of, of you know, um, having our company triggers and working with all different kinds of businesses, we have seen so many parity products that have, so they're not differentiated actually. They don't have actual differentiation. Um, they have the parity from a, a, a differentiation standpoint, but they have perceived superiority because they've done a really good job with their marketing. And similarly, we've seen a lot of really innovative products with superior technologies. They really are differentiated, but that have parity perceptions. Mm. And so it really turns out that competitive advantage is not what we should be worrying about because you can have perceived superiority whether you have a parity product or whether you have a highly differentiated product, a, an right. actual superior product. So what really matters is the, in the end that's going to command a premium is whether you have the subconscious advantage. And by that, I mean perceived superiority. How do you get su- perceived superiority? You have to accumulate, accumulate lots of positive associations more positive associations and a larger, more robust connectome than that of your competition. And that is, translates to perceived superiority. Yeah, we could take Apple as an example, right? They've uh, you know, started off in over years, over years, they start building their brand. Now they have that perceived uh, value and they can you know, charge whatever they want. And they see, you can see the prices going up every single year, right? And it's not going lower anytime soon. It's exactly, it's exactly right. Um, And, you know, was that really the most differentiated computer? You know, I I don't know. Um, A lot of it has to do with the the marketing Um, and accumulating those positive associations really fast, creating distinctive assets. You know, we we actually have looked at the Apple brand Connectome. And Mm. what we see in there is that it's not just about the product. It's not just about the the design and that it's easy to use, um, but it's about Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs' black turtlenecks (laughs) and the 15,000 movies you've seen about Steve Jobs' life. Um, You know, the rewarding whoosh sound when you send an email. You know, there are all these positive associations, some of which come from the product, 
but many of which don't, many of which just come from our brains. Right. Um, and so the, the more associations, the more positive associations you have, the better. But it's all about gaining the subconscious advantage is the key to driving growth um, and accelerating growth and, 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 and getting the, the leading market share in your category. So speaking about you know competitive advantage, so we have a lot of SaaS companies early on. Um, they're looking to come in and break into a market or a specific product that where maybe there's already a clear market leader. And we've seen this many times before. You know, Apple was the leader, but now you can see you know a company like you know a lot of the Androids are not taking over market share. But you know if you looked at it a few years ago, maybe it would have it wouldn't have been realistic, or, or people wouldn't have thought that. Um, you know, with the SaaS specifically, I want to use an example here. Um, you know, I want to understand how can an early stage SaaS company establish itself, itself and compete against a bigger leader? So um, specific example, a lot of people know is like MailChimp, right? They've, they've been around for a while. They're a leader in the email marketing space, but there's hundreds and hundreds of other email marketing tools out there. If I want to come in and, you know, try to compete with them. Can we, can we go through an example? Um, uh, you know, for example, a company ReachMail, they also de- do email marketing. Um, you know, what is MailChimp doing right? And let's say, what can ReachMail implement to improve their brand? And for those of those listening on the, in our audience who are, who are not seeing this, um, you guys can follow along, you know, on, on your own screens, check out MailChimp and ReachMail.com. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go through it kind of high level and see what we can do. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's that sounds like fun. We'll we'll compare these two brands. Um, so let's start with Mailchimp. I don't know how long they've been around. Maybe you do, um, but I feel like they were maybe the first to come out with their, or one of the first to come out with their um, their mail management system. Um, and two thousand and one, so almost twenty. Two thousand one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. there you go. So they so the the they did one thing right. They got the first mover advantage. So that is super helpful. But that doesn't help the people who are in the audience wanting to know, well, how do I beat out somebody like a MailChimp? Um, but MailChimp has done a few things right. So let's first give them credit for for what they've what they've done. First of all, they have a cool name. Um, so there's mail, part of the name tells you what it's for, uh, but the part of the name has a little bit of a, a unique image to it. And they have that little chimp character um, on that yellow background when you first come to the homepage. And so it has a little bit of a personality. Um, chimpanzees are clever uh, and they move fast uh, and they're associated with athleticism. So there, there's, there's probably some positive brand associations that they're getting from that. They, they have a, a website that is very easy to use. Um, they have clear iconography um, that tells you the benefits of what you're going to uh, get and what you're going to be able to do. They, they go right into that right away. Um, and then they um, back it up with some support that makes you feel like you're not going to be completely on your own. Um, they tell you about the guidance that's going to be with you there uh, every step of the way. And so even though this is a self-serve platform, you get the sense that um, you're, you're going to be supported if you, you know, if you, if you want it. Um, and by the way, just a, a, tang- a tangential note on that. 
I do believe that that is the future of a lot of direct-to-consumer platforms. I think it's going to be not just self-serve, but self-serve with a human touch. Um, I think those are the companies. I, people don't want the all human and people don't want the all robo. They want, um, you know, the robo, do, do it yourself, but with um, supports. I think that's really the future. And I could see MailChimp is already kind of heading in that direction. So I think those are some of the things that um, MailChimp is doing right. I don't think the, their, dis, their brand assets are that distinctive. And so that's a vulnerability that MailChimp has. If you look at the design style, um, the illustration style that they're using, I think that it could use some work. It could be a lot more distinctive. It could be more ownable. Uh, it could be um, more um, harmonious. Um, and, and so I think they're missing an opportunity to embed um, imagery in our minds um, that, so that as soon as I hear MailChimp, there's, there's a whole bunch of different images that come into my mind and they, they start to really own that brand connect home in my mind. I think that mm. my guess is that MailChimp has, still has a pretty sparse brand connect home, even though they may have a lot of users, um, that's different than do they, you know, have a strong, healthy, robust brand connect home that's filled with, you know, imagery and positive associations. Mm. Now let's switch to ReachMail. Uh, ReachMail um, has a very generic look to it. The name is more generic, ReachMail. Um, both of those are descriptive to the category and nothing about it is really ownable like MailChimp, like the chimp part of mail, MailChimp. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, they have a little, a little man um, um, that's part of their logo that kind of looks like clip art or a little ju juvenile, which may not... Um, provide the brand with professional associations and serious uh, associations. If you're really trying to do this for your business, it's kind of important to you. Um, and uh, as you look at the imagery that they use on their site, which is sort of faceless people, um, that kind of is, is probably not giving the brand, not probably not doing the brand any favors um, in that it, it looks very generic. It's a little off-putting, um, you know, faceless, faceless people, um, graphics uh, are probably not the way to, to go. Um, so they also lack distinctive brand assets. Um, but the flow of their information is also not as clear as MailChimp. Um, they don't start with benefits. They start by asking you who you are, are you a small business, a big business? And, 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 and they don't get to the benefits um, and the how you use it fast enough. Um, so I can kind of just see by looking at the two platforms that ReachMail might be, you know, might be struggling. But that mm. doesn't mean that it couldn't um, or any small, smaller, you know, mail, um, uh, mail system um, couldn't, couldn't make inroads in MailChimp. I think they could, uh, mm -hmm. but they need to have distinctive brand assets. They need to have a strong imagic brand name. They need to have a flow of information that gives people the benefits and the proper support. Um, and, uh, you know, an overall vision uh, of the, of the strategy that's, that's very clear. Um, 
uh, there was another one that I looked at the other day, I think it was called Smarter. Um, and, and that one seemed to sort of have a more cohesive story, a co- more cohesive narrative around, you know, why you should choose them versus MailChimp. In a way, they're almost saying we're, we're the smarter way to do it than using mm. MailChimp. Um, so they're disrupting, the, they're trying to disrupt the big guy. Um, and that's definitely a, a good strategy to use when you're, when you're a little guy. Um, uh, go after the big guy. Um, because it's it, it, there are disruptors every day in every category. We see them, you know, all the time. Everybody from, you know, Dollar Shave Club in the razor business to um, uh, Impossible Meat um, in, in the meat category. These brands come out of nowhere and they are mm. able to disrupt. But you have to have a strong story um, and you have to add a lot of positive associations very fast and create a contrast between what you're doing and that big dominant brand that you're trying to go after. Mm. Quick question about that. So um, you mentioned a couple of things there. Uh, you know, people using animals in their names and then, you know, colors. How, how effective is that when you're thinking to create, create your name? So something like Blue Mail, or I think there's something like Send Blue, um, or, you know, MailChimp. And, you know, there's, there's all these different octopus mail and things like that. How important is that? You know, I, I don't know if that I would say that uh, anything is specifically important uh, out of, you know, comparing one versus the other. It's all how you use it. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I think the important thing to understand is that everything that you communicate should have positive associations. So, you know, blue is not going to mean anything unless it's associated with you know, water and purity and mm. um, cool. And I'm not sure those benefits have anything to do with um, this particular category. Uh, so I would be looking for a name that communicates something positive, many positive things in this category. That's how I would go about choosing a name. Uh, a name that's packed with meaning uh, and positive meaning that relates to this category will do better than a name that doesn't mean anything. That's just kind of a random, a random name. Right, it makes sense. Cool. So, uh, thanks for, for for sharing that and doing that that kind of breakdown. Um, now, just kind of going into the more personal level. You know, been twenty five years now. You've had success uh, for for this long. Who or what are the three people, you know, mentors, resources, or books that you could say have been the most influential or impactful to you in your success? Uh, so, I mean, in terms of people, I, I, I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but, you know, I would say that my parents um, are the most important influence in my life. Cool. Uh, they always told me that I could do anything. I could be anything. Um, I, was, I was probably pretty um, driven myself, um, but they always facilitated anything that I was interested in, anything that I liked to do. Um, they would they would make it easy for me, uh, nurtured my interests, and I was had kind of one creative side and one very analytical side, and mm-hmm. they nurtured both of those. And so I, I would have to say my parents were the most important influence um, in my, my in my life, and I was very fortunate uh, from that standpoint. I lost my father about five years ago, and it was the biggest loss in my life because he was like my biggest champion, and always believed in me. So. Um, a shout out to my dad, who unfortunately <laughs> is is no longer here. Um, uh, in terms of other resources, you know, I, I've learned from so many different people in business. Um, 
But uh, so I, there's not any one person who stands out in business. I have, you know, somebody who um, is a, a, a very good mentor right now. Um, mm-hmm. Not so much earlier in my career, a gentleman by the name of Michael Farmer. Um, he's a super smart. He used to work at Bain and Company. We knew each other way back when, and we reunited recently. And uh, he's been a big influence in my life. He's also written a couple of books um, uh, about the the whole advertising industry. Uh, so there's Michael Farmer. And then just in terms of books, uh, I would say that everybody should read uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm, which is a, a, a book about um, those two brains that I mentioned. He calls them system one and system two. I talked about conscious and subconscious, um, but it's, it's basically the same kind of thing. You'll hear about subconscious shortcuts in there. Um, and then, you know, our work kind of builds off of that um, with the, the brand Connectome. So some, those are some of the things that the resources that have been important to me. Awesome. We'll put, we'll put a link to the, that book in the show notes and, and your mentor. Uh, Leslie, what does success mean to you today? Ooh, that's a big <laughs> question. Wow. Um, look, I, I am championing a new way of thinking about marketing. Mm. Uh, I believe that the way we are doing marketing today is based on an old set of rules um, that are outmoded. Um, if you think about it, um, marketers are still using the same playbook that was created in the days of Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, brain science, however, has evolved tremendously since then. We know so much more about behavioral economics and neuroscience. And I really think we need a new set of rules. And we've created that new set of rules at, at Triggers. So um, to me, professional success is about getting more companies to use this approach um, because it's going to help them grow much faster. And growing much faster means more jobs, more employment, more, you know, manufacturing plants built, um, you know, more software being built, more, you know, an economy that's thriving um, instead of stagnant. So that's what, uh, to me, what um, professional success is all about. And then in my personal life, you know, I, t- I try to do the right thing um, by the people that, that I love, family, friends. Um, success means, you know, helping people that, that I meet, whether it's, you know, young people starting out on their career. I do a, a bunch of work for nonprofits. Um, so to me, success is, you know, you know, giving back and, and using my skills to help people wherever, wherever I can. I, that sounds really corny, but, um, it's all personal. There's no, there's no right answer here. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, it sounds corny, but it's, but it's true. That's awesome. (laughs) Any final thoughts or messages you'd like to leave our listeners with? I mean, I guess the only, um, wrap up I would, I would say is that, it turns out that every brand has untapped potential. No matter where you are in your journey, if you're just starting out or if you've had a brand for a couple of years um, or if you even have a, a, you know, a brand for a, or a company for a very long time and it's uh, you know, a little bit more mature, um, every brand has untapped potential. All you need to do is add those positive associations quickly um, and leverage the subconscious mind um, to make your brand connect home grow in the minds of your customers. 
that's that's the process. Uh, and so I think that's a very hopeful and optimistic message. Anybody can do anything. Um, they just need to set their mind to it. <laughs> sure. Love it. Cool. And uh, how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing or what you're working on, Leslie? Uh, you can link with me uh, on LinkedIn uh, under Leslie Zane um, and Triggers. Uh, you could go to triggers.com. You can also go to lesliezane.com. I love meeting new people. So um, for sure, you know, reach out. Uh, I'd love to uh, connect with you. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much, Leslie. appreciate you jumping on today. Thanks for having me. This was a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.